I'm curious, how many of you have been watching the Olympics? Anybody? A few people. A few people. I was thinking this week as we, the Olympics were on back to 1984, when the Olympics were in Los Angeles. And my sister had a great opportunity. She didn't get to go to the Olympics. But during that year, one of the things they did was carry the torch across the United States. And if you're familiar with the tradition, there's the Olympic torch that's in Olympia, Greece. And it stays lit, and every time the Olympics are on, the flame is taken from the torch there in Olympia, Greece, and then carried across the world to wherever the Olympics are held. So the flame burning in Beijing now found its light, its flame, in Olympia, Greece. And I was thinking about that picture of a torch and the passing and the light as we were reading the passage for today. And I want to set the context for the story that we read from the Gospel of John. So we're in the Gospel of John, this story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's one of four stories. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four Gospels, these four tellings of the good news. And John has many different ways. John is definitely unique in his telling of the story. It's very different than the way he tells it. And what I always find interesting is that oftentimes people say, oh, for somebody who's new to the faith or somebody you're trying to introduce the faith to, read John. And then I read a passage like the one we read today. And I don't know about you, but it's not always really easy to follow, is it? Nope. It's a little confusing, kind of goes back and forth. I was like, why would you give this to someone? And that's the way John is. John's very different from our other Gospels. From Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Luke, we know all the stories, the parables, and Mark just kind of flies through things. And Matthew has all these references to the Scripture. But John has these big, long speeches from Jesus. They kind of meander, and there's arguments back and forth, and he speaks in riddles, in ways that are sometimes confusing. And so we're in the midst of this story of what's going on, but more specifically, within this story of John, we're at something called the Feast of Tabernacles. And we find Jesus going there at the start of chapter 7. So the Feast of Tabernacles is this great festival of the Jews. They had three major festivals, and one of them was the Feast of Tabernacles. This was probably the most joyous, the most celebratory of all the festivals. In it, the people would come, and tabernacles is a fancy word for booths or tents. They would come, and they would stay in these tents or booths constructed out of branches. And it was a way to do a couple of things. One, they would celebrate the harvest. But in celebrating the harvest, they remember God's provision, the way God provided for them, and specifically the way that God provided for them when thousands of years before, God had rescued the people of Israel who were in slavery. God's people, the Jewish people, had been in slavery in Egypt, and they had been brought out, and they, all their festivals ultimately point back to that. But the Exodus or the Passover festival kind of celebrates the coming out. The tabernacles celebrates the time they're in the desert, because after they come out of slavery... They spend 40 years in the desert. And while they're in the desert, there aren't grocery stores. There aren't fast food places. There aren't watering stations. But instead, where do they get food? Where do they get water? God provides for them. When they're in the desert and it's dark, they don't have flashlights. They don't have headlamps. But instead, God provides for them with this pillar of fire that leads them by night. And so as the people of 
Israel, as God's people, come to Jerusalem every year for the Feast of Tabernacles, they have their minds set back to that time in the desert when God provided for them. When he provided food for them to eat. When he provided water for them to drink. When he provided light to light their way at night. And so they come and they celebrate this gift of God's provision. And in chapter 7, we find Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they did several things to celebrate this. The Jewish priests would go down to the pool down at the base and they would take these pitchers essentially and scoop this water up and then there would be this big ceremony and they would carry it up to the temple and up to the altar and they would pour the water out. A symbol of what? The water that God had provided for them in the desert. And in chapter 7 we see Jesus promising to give people the water of life. And so Jesus is pointing back to how he provides just as God provided. Another part of the festival was they had these torches and candelabras, giant things. And from the descriptions of them, there's not really something that's comparable to what we have today. I mean, think of the Olympic torch. And that's kind of what I thought it was, these giant torches. And they would be these giant things. And estimate these bowls may have been 30, 50 feet around, maybe even bigger. And they would have a set of four of these. And there were four in each around the temple. So we had like 16 of these giant bowls. And the wicks for these Candle, well, I don't even call them candles. These torches, these giant flames were the discarded robes of the priests. And they would light these things. And the rabbis tell that when these were lit, the entire city of Jerusalem was lit. Imagine 16 just huge bowls filled with oil, these giant wicks just burning. Now, for us, we go to the city, we go to the town, and we're used to it. I mean, we go somewhere where it's dark, we're like, what's going on here? We're, who turned out the lights? 2,000 years ago in the days of Jesus, there were no light. When, when the sun went down, it was dark. Maybe you had a little lamp in your house. But walking the streets, there weren't street lights. There were no motion sensor lights. There were no headlights. There was nothing. It was dark. And so now you've gathered at this festival and these huge torches are burning, just casting a light over the entire city. A reminder of the way that God had provided light in this pillar of fire to guide the people through the desert. And now we're not sure exactly when Jesus got up to speak. It may have been on this last day when the lights were burning, or it may very well have been after the lights had been extinguished. And so we come to this part where he stands up and he says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we're standing there. You're a Jewish person, and you've seen the city bathed in the light of these giant torches. You're remembering the way that God's people had the light of God going before them, leading their way into the desert. And then Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus says this, then we go into this long conflict back and forth. And you heard that in the reading back and forth. The people are questioning, well, what's your authority to do this? Who's your witness for it? And he answers, and they have questions for them. And then he answers, and they have questions for him. And he answers, and they have questions for him. And there's doubts, and there's back and forth. And we stopped at verse 32. It goes all the way down to verse 58. 
just back and forth and back and forth. And then one of the big focuses is who's telling the truth? Who's the fraud and who's the true witness? There's a whole lot about Abraham. You see this name Abraham show up seven times in the passage. Abraham is the hero of the faith in some sense for the Jewish people. He's the one who was the one that God had given these promises to, the beginner of the, the father of the nation, both literally and figuratively, the one who demonstrated what faith looked like. And so they're looking back and there's arguments about who claims Abraham and who belongs to him. And we could spend a long time, we could spend weeks just on this passage, kind of taking apart all the different parts and the arguments back and forth. But I want to focus on for today, just this picture of Jesus' light. And in particular, one of the things that light does, and that's clear, what, what does light do? Helps us see, right? It helps us to see. And so when Jesus talks about the light of the world, and, and next week when we get in the passage, there'll be some more looking at that, about this idea of seeing and not seeing. But he helps us to see the truth of our identity. He helps us to see about slavery and freedom. We started reading that in verse 31 and 32, where Jesus says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I just want to read a little bit more, verses 33 through 36. He says, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and had never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And the real thing going on is this idea of identity. Who are they? And the people keep going back to this connection with Abraham. They keep going back and they keep wondering, so what were the sons of Abraham? We have Abraham as our descendant and Jesus as our, as our father. And Jesus says, well, no, it's the father of lies. And they go back and forth. But this idea of the connection with Abraham. We are Abraham's descendant. Verse 39. Abraham is our father. But what's going on? Jesus keeps saying, you keep talking about that, but Jesus wants them to understand it's like, no, what matters is not your connection to Abraham, but your connection to me. It's not the connection to Abraham, it's the connection to Jesus. And now we say, well, we don't talk about Abraham. I, we sing songs once in a while about Abraham. We know about Abraham. But we don't trust in Abraham. But my question is, do we sometimes trust in our own religious heritage? To something that we're connected to? Maybe it's our parents' faith. Maybe we say, well, my, my parents, they were in church all the time. And they were good Christians. You know, and he was a deacon and and she was a deacon, and she taught Sunday school, and we look back and we say, here's where my faith is, or there was that time back in 1983 where I walked down to the front of the church and I gave my life to Jesus. There was this time back in the past when we did this, or I'm a member of the Evangelical Covenant Church, or I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church, or I'm a member of this, or I was baptized at this age. And when we do that, we're doing the very same thing that these people are doing. They're looking back to a trust in their religious heritage. Now, there's nothing wrong with our religious heritage. We celebrate that. We remember the people who went before us, the people who gave their faith. 
But what Jesus wants us to understand is we have to have our own faith. We can't simply rely on the faith of those who went before. We can't simply look to something that had in the past. It's not, following Jesus is not something we inherit. We inherit lots of things from our parents. We inherit genetics that affect the way we look and many things about us. We inherit habits and patterns. We inherit traditions. But one thing you cannot inherit from your parents, one thing they can't leave to you in their will, one thing your grandparents or your aunts or your uncles or family can pass on to you is life in Jesus. And that's what Jesus is getting at. It's something you have to claim for yourself. That we can't just be looking to the past and say, oh, back then, I was a follower of Jesus. Jesus is saying, it isn't just about back then, it's about now. And it's not just for us as individuals, it's sometimes for us as a church too. Karl Barth, in his commentary on the book of Romans, talks about this very same thing when he's talking about the past and Abraham and his faith, and he tells a parable. He tells a parable of a group of people who are on a journey. And they're on this journey westward, and they come to a place where there's a sign that points them to the west. And they stop underneath the sign. And underneath the sign, they start to celebrate. They write songs they create liturgies. They tell stories. They begin to live. There. They send a few people forward and discover, and the people come back and say, yeah, it's there. But then the next generation comes, and then the next generation after that, and they're still living under the sign because they've forgotten the destination to which they have been called. They've forgotten the journey to which they are on. And Bart's point is that sometimes the church does the very same thing. We forget our purpose or we come to the place and we come simply to the sign, we come simply to the point or we come simply to this place in the past in our heritage and we're stuck there rather than recognizing the true call is to move forward into life in Jesus. And so sometimes churches... And by churches, I mean local bodies, local expressions of Jesus can do the very same thing. We start on the journey, we're intended the journey, and we have some great times along the journey and great things happen, but then we get stuck in that one place and we never realize that the goal is to continue on in the journey. But instead, we look back and we say, how oh, do you remember when? Do you remember when we did those things and we live in the past? And we think, well, we had that in the past. And so we base our faith, we base who we are in Jesus and our trust in following Jesus on what's going on in the past. It doesn't mean that the past wasn't valuable. It doesn't mean that God didn't do those great things in the past. But we can't simply live in the past. Jesus instead calls us to move forward. So we can go down to the gym and pass. So where was I? We're going down to the gym. We're on our way down to the gym and we pass a picture on the wall and there's these hundreds of kids gathered at Fruitland Covenant Church and we should rightly celebrate that. 
and say, look at the way we met people and we reached out to a community and we invited them to follow Jesus and lives were changed. And we celebrate that. But on the same token, we can't simply call, call back today as we, the Fruitland Covenant Church of 2022, can't simply back say, look, those are our, we have those people as our descendants, as our ancestors. Instead, what we have to look and say is, who are we today and how are we following Jesus and expressing his life today? And so part of it is the question of where do we find our identity? Where do we put our trust? I'm going to switch gears totally and talk about something different. But the idea of tribalism. If you're familiar with tribalism, tribalism is this idea that we put ourselves in groups, in categories. Today there will be tribes gathered, the tribe of the Rams and the tribe of the Bengals. And they will stand on opposite sides, wondering about each other and in conflict with one another. And they'll be in their camps about who's the better one. And they'll think poorly of the other tribe. But tribalism runs much deeper in our country and in our society than that. It comes in many different ways. I was reading a little bit about a recent book by a man named Chris Bale. And Chris Bale wrote this book about the media of social, or the prism of social media. And now some of you might be thinking, I don't use Facebook. I don't even know the first thing about it. I don't know the difference between a tweet and a tick. I don't know how to keep a Snapchat going. I don't know how to do any of those things. What does social media have to do with me? Well, Neil Postman back in 1985 wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he talks about, I mean, he, um, Neil Postman was in some sense a prophet, and he talked about the way that our society is shaped, and, and he was talking simply about television and the way it shapes it. But what Neil Postman made the point was that we do not have to watch television to be affected by the culture of television. Unless we are completely separate from anyone else who watches television, all those things that revolve around it affect us. And in the same way, we don't have to be on social media to be affected by what goes on there and the way in which it shapes us. Unless we are completely separated from other people who are on social media. Because we have conversations. We have, and what Bale gets to in his book, and he did this long study of how social media acts as a prism. And one of the fascinating things that he talked about in social media was that what social media tends to do is mute the moderates and elevate the extremes. It mutes the moderates and it elevates the extremes. And what he's saying is sometimes we go, so people go on social media, and the reality is most of us, if we were to put ourselves on a spectrum of our political views or our, our religious views and stuff, most of us fit somewhere along the middle. We may be in the center. We may be a little to the right of the center. We may be a little to the left of the center. And that's where most people live. There's a few who sit at the far extremes of either end. But the nature of social media is such that all the people who kind of live in the middle, their voices go down. 
and the people on the far ends get lifted up. The consequence of that and the reason we're talking about that is because what happens then is that we, for most of us, and the sociologists differ, you know, those extremes are maybe 3 to 5% at either end. So be generous. Say 10% of the people are in the extremes. That means 90% of us live in that middle somewhere. Now, imagine that you go on social media or you interact with people on social media and you feel like your voice is never there. All you hear are the extremes or when you try and say something, your voice gets shut down. The consequence of all that is isolation and alienation. When we say something and it feels like nobody's listening, what happens? We feel alone. When we look around and we think that no one is like us, Again, go back to the Super Bowl. Imagine walking into a sports bar and you've got your Bengals shirt on and everybody else is dressed for the Rams. How would you feel alone and isolated and you'd want to just kind of back out the door? But the same is true for political views or religious views that if we start to feel like we're all alone and that our voice or that no one else thinks the way that we do because the moderates have been muted and the extremists have been elevated, we start to feel isolated. We start to feel alienated. And the result of that is that we start to seek out love and acceptance in other places. We start to form tribes. We start to seek out something else to give us meaning and stuff, instead of finding it where it ultimately does, because all these other identities, all these other things that we claim ultimately fail. And what Jesus is pointing us to is the call to find our identity in him. Because that even talks there where, in the initial conversation with them, where they challenge him, and Jesus says, well, I know where I came from and where I am going. And so one of the questions is, do you know who you are? and what your identity is? Or are you being shaped by the culture around you to start to cling to another tribe rather than clinging to Jesus and who he is? And so Jesus is saying, I am the one who can give you your true identity. I am the one who can reveal to yourself who you truly are. I am the one who can shine a light on these false ideas and these false narratives these false stories, these groups that we cling to to give us a sense of purpose, the groups that we cling to to give us a sense of hope, whether it's the Republicans and the Democrats or the anti-woke or the CRT folks or whatever categories we find ourselves in, all these categories to try and help ourselves to fit in. And Jesus is saying, don't put your hope, don't put your trust, don't try and find your identity in those things, but instead find your identity in one place and the only place to find our true identity, to find who we truly are, to find life in, in and of itself is in Jesus. John starts his gospel that way. 
where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. In other words, in him is life. Jesus is not saying that he simply points the way to life. Jesus is not saying that it comes from other places or that we can do. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. Sorry. Oops. All right. Doesn't manage it. All right. But instead, to recognize that when Jesus says he is the light of the world, that God sent Jesus into the world as the light to bring life. The light does disclose, but the light doesn't simply disclose. The light delivers life. So I invite you to hear those words today. To ask yourself, where are you seeking your identity? Where are you seeking hope? Where are you seeking your faith? Is it in your own traditions? Is it in your family? Is it in a tribe somewhere else? And if it's somewhere other than Jesus, I invite you to hear his words as he stood up there before the people at the Feast of Tabernacles, reminding the people of God's presence and provision. And he said to them, I am the light of the world. He invites us to find life in him and in him alone and nowhere else. So may we see today, may we see through Jesus, may we see in Jesus, may we see Jesus and see him as the light and the life of the world. And give ourselves to him. And then, as children of the light, shine brightly into the world around us. Amen.